Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you are indeed God of highest heaven, uh, and we do want to um, be people through whom you glorify your name. Uh, we know that you address us uh, as your people, by your Spirit, through your word. And we thank you for these words that your Spirit gave to Moses uh, to speak to your people, Israel, all those years ago. And we thank you that your Spirit continues to speak these words to us. And so we pray now as we consider this passage um, that you will enable me to preach it rightly and faithfully in your Spirit's power. Uh, and may your Spirit work in each one of our hearts. And may he be pointing us to Jesus. May he be helping us to see how you would have us live uh, and giving us hearts that long to serve and please you. Uh, so we commit this time to you and we ask you to please work among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many companies, when they hire you, they give you a list of expectations, don't they? All right, this is how you should act when you're with our company. Uh, there are hours you should keep, there are holidays you're entitled to, these are the rules you shouldn't break, uh, these are the things they want you to do. It's always good to know what's expected of you so that you know how to act. Because if you don't know what the expectations are, then how are you going to work to meet them? Sometimes, if you're working in a multinational company, these expectations may be generally the same across the world, but have specific variations from nation to nation. Uh, and so when you move from one place to another, it's helpful to review the expectations in light of the local situation. Now, about 40 years before the passage we're looking at today was first delivered in the form of a servant, servant, but sermon, right? Israel had been saved by God from slavery in Egypt. He had rescued them with great signs and wonders, bringing punishment on Egypt and saving his people. He had brought them through the Red Sea. He had brought them to Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb. He had given them the law. But they had kept on rebelling again and again and again. And in the end, God decided that the generation that came out of Egypt would die in the wilderness. And so they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years until that generation was wiped out and a new generation had come up. And our passage today is one of the three sermons that Moses gave this new generation as he prepared them to enter the land. And one of the things that he does in this sermon is to help them see God's expectations of them when they live in the land. It's similar in principle to what God gave them at Sinai, but it's applied a little bit differently for their new situation in the promised land. Of course, our situation is different again, isn't it? We're no longer under the old covenant, the one God made with his people Israel. We are under the new covenant, sealed with the blood of Christ. We have rede been redeemed from death, not because of his rescue from Egypt, but because of what Christ did on the cross. He has rescued us not from slavery, but from sin and Satan and death and hell. We don't rely on the law to put us right with God. We don't even rely on the law to keep us right with God. We are made right with God and we stay right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. But we do know that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that, that we might be equipped for every good work. We don't read it directly as if we were Israelites, because we're not, but we do read it as God's word for us, 
to be understood and applied in light of the coming of Christ. And so as we consider this passage, not just by itself, but in light of the New Testament, and God by His Spirit will show us expectations of how He wants us to live as His people. As we look at this passage, we will see five things God expected from His Old Testament people, and He expects from us as well. They're on the screen, they're on your outlines. Worship in God's one place. Don't be led astray. Express your holiness. Share your resources. Remember God's grace. And we will look at all of them as we work through the passage. The first thing God tells us people through Moses in this passage, in the beginning of chapter 12, is there is only one place to worship him. You see, the people they were about to dispossess in the land, they were very religious. They had shrines on the mountains, on the hills, under the trees, all over the place. And Israel might have been tempted just to go to those shrines and worship Yahweh. Or even to try and merge the worship of Yahweh with Canaanite religion. But God says, no, all those places of worship, verse 2, he says, destroy them. In verse 3, he says, tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, burn their asherim, the, the, the sacred poles, uh, uh, destroy their idols. Verse 4, do not worship Yahweh, the Lord, your God, the way the pagans worship their gods. Instead, verse 5, God is going to choose a special place for his name to dwell. And people from all over land must go there to bring their offerings and sacrifices. To eat and rejoice, in verse 7, in the blessings of God. Once God has given you that place, that one place, that is where you are to sacrifice, nowhere else. Now, of course, if you're slaughtering animals for normal kind of eating, not sacrifice, then you can do it anywhere, lah. I still got to do it lawfully, right? You can't you have to pour out the blood in verse 24 and not eat that. It's, but it's not the same as making a sacrifice and eating it. So Moses says, don't follow the ways of the nations before you. Don't think, verse 29, how do they worship their gods? Okay, I'm going to do that, worship my God that way. No, 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 no. They ended up doing terrible things, including child sacrifice. He says, Yahweh is God. The Lord is God. He is to be worshipped in the way and in the place that he determines. Not, but why, not how we might think we want to do it. Now later on in the Old Testament, we find that the place where God said his name was Jerusalem. David brought the tabernacle there. Solomon built the temple there. It was God's appointed place. It was also the place where Jesus purposely went in order to die. He knew he must die there because he would be the one true sacrifice offered in that place. But with the coming of Jesus, we are no longer tied down to one place. Well, one physical place. Because that place was a shadow of the reality that is now here. God still wants to be worshipped in one place, the real place, and Jesus is God's true place. He is the real temple to which the physical temple was a pointer. 
destroy this temple, Jesus said, and I will raise it up in three days. And he was talking of the temple of his body. And so today, there is still only one place to worship God, and that is in him. We are not given the liberty to worship as we please. We are not given multiple places, multiple ways. No, no, no. There's only one way to worship, and that is through Jesus. There is only one place to worship, and that is in Jesus. There is no room for mixing religions, no room for other gods. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. True worship is worship in Jesus. We come to God on the basis of that once and for all sacrifice that he made on the cross, and we offer our lives to him in thanksgiving for what he has done for us. That is what God wants from his people. Worship in God's one place. In chapter 13, God warns his people then not to be led astray. In fact, being led astray is, is so terrible, it is so dangerous, the consequences of it are so devastating that Israel was to go to every length to avoid it. And God here warns about three bad influences and tells them how to deal with them. In verse 1 to 5 of chapter 13, Moses warns God's people against false prophets. Even in verse 2, if the false prophet does a sign or wonder. Very impressive. But then he says, let us go after other gods. Ah, don't listen. It's a test. You shall walk after Yahweh, verse 4. The Lord, your God. Fear Him, keep His commandments, obey His voice, serve Him, hold fast to Him. And put the false prophet, verse 5, to death. And so purge the evil from within your midst. That's what he says. But it's not just the false prophets, Moses says, in verse 6 onwards. Even if you have a relative or a close friend who calls upon you to worship another god, that is still a capital offense. He is to be stoned to death, verse 10, so that all Israel may hear and fear, verse 11, and never do such a wickedness again. Strong words. And then in verse 12 to 13, if a whole city is led astray to other gods, all the people shall be killed, all their possessions shall be burned as an offering to God. Don't try and keep it. Burn it all. And the city shall never be rebuilt. In other words, they should treat them the same way like the idolatrous Canaanites in the land. And Moses says that if Israel does that, God will not punish them for the evil of that city. They will not share in their guilt. In the New Testament, God warns his people as well. False teachers who lead God's people astray, they are to be cut off. They're not killed because we're no longer in the physical land. They are to be expelled from God's people. And God himself will condemn them. 
This is what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, that is, let him be eternally condemned. You see, false teachers will be judged by God. They are leading people to hell. God will bring judgment upon them. But in the meantime, they must not be given license to lead people astray. That is the application for the church. But there's also application for individuals, isn't it? For even as individuals, we need to be careful how we're being influenced. Are there people or things or situations that are drawing us away from Christ? And if so, we might need to remove ourselves from that situation. We might need to remove those things from our lives. Better lose something now than be condemned forever. This is very serious because it's a matter of eternal life and death. Do not be led astray. The next section begins and ends by reminding Israel that she is holy. Uh, in chapter 14, verse 1, Israel reminded that they're sons of God. And then in verse 2, they're reminded that they are a people holy to the Lord. Now, being holy means they are set apart. They're different. They're separate. They're, 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 they're set apart from the rest of the world to belong to God in a special way. And this distinction, this holiness, back in verse 1, means they should not cut themselves or make any boldness on their forehead for the dead. Obviously, some kind of pagan rite. And the Israelites were not to participate in any such thing. They were holy people for God. The section ends in verse 21. Look at the end of verse 21. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Again, talking about them being God's holy people. And then linked to it is a command that sounds a little bit strange to us. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I've never been tempted to do that. I... But given the structural mirroring with verse 1, I think it must be talking about some kind of pagan rightla, because it's uh, mirroring the opening part of this section. In other words, Israel's holiness meant that she was not to copy the pagan religious practices or take part in them. She belonged to God. She was holy. And then in between these two bookends, the rest of the section reminds Israel what holiness looks like for them. The fact they are different from the other nations doesn't just mean they don't do these pagan religious things. It means even their diet is different. And so God reminds them in verse 3 to 21 which animals are clean and which animals are unclean for them, which ones they can eat, which ones they can't eat. And we, we read that list just now. Now, it's not that some of these animals are more hygienic than others, or some of these animals are more um, nutritious than others. Right? An animal is clean or unclean simply because God says so. And if Israel are God's holy people, they must be distinct from the people around them. And so God gives them these food laws to separate them from the others. Now, friends, in the New Testament, we are not bound by these food laws. We saw in our New Testament reading, didn't we, uh, that Jesus has declared all foods clean. So it's okay to eat char siu pao 
and one tan me, babi hutan, right? But God is still concerned for our holiness. God wants us to be different from the world around us. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, it's what comes out. And from the heart, he says, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Friends, we have to think about these things very carefully because we are God's people. We are God's holy people. We are set apart from the rest of the world to belong to Him. And God wants us to express that holiness in the way we live. And that means getting rid of all unclean things that we find in our hearts. Let me read that list to you again. And let's think more carefully about these things. Evil thoughts. Sexual immorality. Theft. Murder. Adultery. Coveting. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Which of these things do we see coming out of our hearts that we need to repent of? We are God's holy people. We must express our holiness by getting rid of these things. The following section, from verse 22 of chapter 14 all the way to verse 18 of chapter 15, is about how God's people should enjoy and share their resources. Uh, in verse 22 to 27, uh, God speaks through Moses about how to enjoy their yearly tithe. That is, they should set aside 10% of what God gives them in terms of grain and wine and oil, etc., and all the first part of the cattle, and they're to take it to that one place of worship to enjoy. If it's too far away, they should convert it to cash first and then take it, and then when they get there, they can spend it on food, wine, oil, whatever they like. Just two things, Moses says at the end of verse 26, eat it before Yahweh your God and enjoy it with your household. And then secondly, in verse 27, include the Levites. The Levites weren't going to get any land when God divided it up. Uh, they'll be full-time serving God. And so enjoy his big party before God in his special place with the produce of the land each year. And when you do, remember the Levites who didn't get land because he's serving God and do it together. Now scholars debate how the tithe in Deuteronomy 14 relates to the tithe in Numbers. Where in which 10% goes to the Levites. Some will say this meal that's enjoyed together is, is part of that 10%. Others say it's a separate tithe, so they're giving the 10% twice. Uh, but either way, uh, Moses tells them that once in three years, verse 28, once in three years, instead of bringing it, they're to keep it in their own towns instead of taking it to the central place. And they're going to give it to the Levites there and to the poor, that is the sojourners, the fatherless, and the widows that are there. It doesn't say so here, but presumably there's some kind of mechanism that they should set up so that uh, to collect it all and distribute uh, among the, the poor according to their needs over the next three years. The important thing here, though, is to see how God wants his people to 
to, uh, to use these physical blessings. Notice that. There are three things. Uh, and these blessings that are set apart for him, there are three things. Number one, enjoy them in his presence. Enjoy them in his presence with your family in thanksgiving to him. Enjoy them. Secondly, support those in ministry. Thirdly, share with the poor. Right. And you come to the New Testament, you see those same three things as well. Uh, in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, uh, God gives, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Did you notice the number of times the word enjoy has come up in this passage? It's, it's there. Right? God wants us to enjoy our material blessings with thanksgiving in our hearts to Him. 1 Timothy uh, 6 also tells us that we are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now, we share with the poor. So Ephesians 4.28 uh, tells us that uh, we should do honest work so that we can have something to share with those in need. In fact, Jesus is probably drawing on this passage where he, when he says in Luke 14, when you, know, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't just invite your friends and your brothers or your rich neighbors because they can invite you back. Invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Uh, they cannot repay you. You'll be blessed. It doesn't mean you can't have dinner with your friends and family, but what it does mean is that God wants us to include the poor in the life of our community. And likewise, Israel supported the Levites, and God wants us to support those who are doing gospel ministry. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9 uh, compares those who are uh, employed in the temple service with those who proclaim the gospel. And verse 14 says, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. God wants us, in the New Testament, to enjoy His blessings, to help the poor, to support gospel ministry. We're not told what percentage to set apart for all these different things in the New Testament because everything we have belongs to God. But the same three things that the Israelites were meant to spend their tithes on are the things that we spend money on as Christians. It should inform how we use our money. But it's not just about tithes. And we see two more examples of how God wanted his people to use their resources in chapter 15. Now, the first one is in regards to debt. Moses tells the people that at the end of every seven-year period, all debts are to be released. Now, we're not certain if this means the debt is forgiven altogether or suspended for that year. Uh, but either way, each creditor, in verse 2, uh, gives up what is lent to his neighbor. He doesn't exact it because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. They can still claim from foreigners, but not from the family of God's people. And it's not going to be bad for them, because God will bless them in the land in abundance if they obey Him in all matters, including this one. There'll be no poverty in the land if they obey. There'll be a nation that lends to others and rules over them. But Moses is also realistic, and he knows that they, they won't obey God's law properly, and to the extent they do not obey, God will withhold His blessing from them as a nation. And so they will always still be poor in their society. And he warns them, though, not to be hard-hearted towards those in need. Lend the poor man what he needs, he says in verse 8. And don't think in your mind, verse 9, actually the seventh year is coming up and the debts are cancelled. He really needs this, but I'm not going to give it to him because the debt might get cancelled before, before he can pay back. Ah, if you're calculating like that and you don't help him, 
Moses says he might cry out to God and you'll be guilty of sin because God knows what's on your heart. Give freely, Moses says in verse 10, because God will bless you and make it up to you in the work you do. And so comes the commandment at the end of verse 11. You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Jesus picks up these same kind of sentiments in the New Testament, doesn't he? Uh, he says uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 42, Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse him who would borrow from you. Or in Luke 6, 34, if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what, what credit is that to you? Sinners do that, expect to get it back. But if you lend expecting nothing in return, well, then your reward is great. And I think this is the Old Testament background to what he's saying. God wants his people to look after each other. Now, of course, there are ways and means of doing this that are wise and helpful. And so it may be wise for us to have systems in place and checks and balances to, to minimize abuse. And of course we want to be helping those who are genuinely needy rather than encouraging the con man or helping feed a drug, alcohol or gambling habit. All these things are a given. And of course the Old Testament tells us that those who have the opportunity to work should work. If they refuse to work, they just shouldn't eat. You shouldn't support people like that. And of course there are tough criteria laid out in 1 Timothy before uh, the church as an institution should support people financially. All those things are there. But in the end, if we are confronted with genuine poverty, especially among our brothers and sisters, we are to be generous. Do good to all, God says, especially those of the household of faith. Lend if you can, but when you do, write it off in your own mind as being given away. Remember we had a terrible debt of sin that we could never repay, and Jesus paid it for us by dying on the cross. So why not be willing to cancel the debt of a genuinely poor person who cannot afford to pay you. But it's not just the debts that are to be released every seven years. Moses commands that the slaves are to be released as well. Now, when you see the word slave in the Bible, you must quickly automatically think of the, you know, the 18th century kind of slavery that was, that was rightly opposed and overthrown by Christian activists. Look what slavery is meant to look like among God's people. If one of God's people was sold as a slave, male or female, he can serve for a maximum of six years. After that, he must be released. And when he's released, Moses says to the people in verse 14 of chapter 15, give him generously from what you have. Presumably so he's really well off, so he's got a good start uh, to his life outside. Be like that, he says, because remember, verse 15, you were a slave in Egypt and God redeemed you. But if he refuses to leave, in verse 16, because he loves you and your household, since he's well off with you, ah, then he is, by his own choice, your slave for life. So actually, you are the one who's been under probation for the last six years. And the slave decides whether or not he's happy to serve you for life or not. And friends, in the New Testament, masters are told to treat their slaves justly and fairly, knowing that they too have a master in heaven. For Jesus redeemed us from our slavery to sin. He bought us with the price of his own blood, so, so we are his. We are his slaves. We, we belong to him. But we are also his slaves because we love him and his household. It is a joy to serve him. 
and we will serve him forever. We are his slaves by purchase and by delight. And as his slaves, we are to treat people with kindness and generosity, especially people employed by us. God wants us to share our resources. And friends, as part of the new covenant, uh, we know the blessings of our new covenant, the promised blessings of our new covenant, are the spiritual blessings. And we need to be, we need to be um, generous uh, in sharing them as well, don't we? Uh, if you have been blessed with an abundance of the knowledge of God's Word, then share it with others. Don't be stingy with it. If you have known the riches of God's grace, then share that with your brothers and sisters. Help them see and understand and know as well. If you, as a church and as individuals, we need to be generous and open-handed, uh, with the good things that God has blessed us with. In the last section of our passage, Moses reminds Israel of a number of things that God instituted to help them remember his grace. In verses 19 to 22 of, uh, of chapter 15, Moses reminds them that the firstborn of their cattle was to be dedicated to the Lord. They should eat it before the Lord at their yearly pilgrimage to that one place of worship. If it had a blemish and it wasn't suitable for sacrifice, ah, then you can eat it anywhere with the usual provisos about blood. It doesn't explain why here, but back in Exodus, we see why God set up this consecration of the firstborn animals. It was to remind Israel how God killed all the firstborn of Egypt and saved them from the Egyptians. And God wants them to remember this rescue. And of course, as we look forward in the Bible, we see how God's own firstborn, the Lord Jesus, was the true lamb without blemish who was sacrificed for us to save us from slavery to sin and Satan. God wants his people to remember their rescue. And then in chapter 16, verse 1 to 7, God reminds them of those connected, or 1 to 8 rather, God reminds them of the connected feasts of the Passover and the unleavened bread. Back in Exodus again, God had commanded they should observe the Passover each year to remember how God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And each family would sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on their doorpost because that's what they did when they came out of Egypt. And when God came to kill the, the firstborn of Egypt, he passed over the homes that were sheltering under blood because the death has already happened in that household. And Moses says, when you're in the land, you keep observing the Passover, but now you offer the sacrifice only at the special place that God chose. And the Passover was closely connected with the festival of unleavened bread. Uh, back in Exodus, they had to leave Egypt in such a hurry that they didn't have time to leaven the bread that they had to take to eat on the way. Uh, and so God commanded that for every year, seven days following Passover, they were to eat no leaven. And so here Moses repeats the command as well. And the reason is given again in verse 3. So that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. God wants them to remember his rescue. And then in verses 9 to 12, uh, Moses reminds them of the Feast of Weeks. 
Now, he's going to remind them in more detail in chapter 26. We only mentions it briefly here. Uh, seven weeks from the beginning of the corn harvest, they're going to come before God again at his special place with a free will offering as God has blessed them. And they were going to use it, verse 11, to rejoice before the Lord with their children, with their servants, with the Levites, with the sojourners, with the fatherless, with the widow. And they'll remember they were slaves in Egypt and now they've got this abundance to share. And they'll be, they'll be thankful and obey God's statutes. God wants them to remember his rescue. And finally, in verses 13 to, 7, uh, 13 to 16, Moses, uh, verse 13 to 15, Moses reminds them to keep the festival of booths. Uh, we read elsewhere, it's called the festival of booths or tents because the Israel lives in tents when they came out of Egypt. And this was the great harvest festival in Israel's year. And after the big grain harvest and the big uh, grape harvest, when the grain is processed and the wine is made, they were to celebrate. And for seven days, they would come out once again before God at his special place and enjoy it. And again, it's with their own household, with their children and servants, with the Levites who serve at the temple and have no property, uh, uh, they are the, with the poor, with the sojourners, with the fatherless, with the widow. And God would bless them, verse 15, so that they would be altogether joyful. Isn't that lovely? And so they would come and appear before God at this special place three times a year, Verse 16, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Booths. They wouldn't come empty-handed. They'll come and give according to the blessing they've received from God. And remember, they would do all those three things that we talked about earlier. Enjoy in His presence with thanksgiving to Him. Support those in ministry. Share with the poor. And the whole community of God's people would rejoice together. And not just rejoice that they got good food, but eat and drink together and rejoice in the grace of God who has saved them from slavery, and bless them in the land. You see, God wanted his people to remember his grace. And he wants us to do that as well. Uh, we saw last week, Andy read just now, how God gave Israel his word to hear, to read, to memorize, to meditate on, so that they will remember what he did for them. And he's given his word to us as well. But this passage reminds us that he also gave them these feasts to remember his salvation. And God has given us a feast, not three, just one. It's a meal of remembrance. We are to eat in God's presence in that one true place in Christ, eat it together with all God's people, rich and poor, eat it in love because it shows the love that God has shown us in Christ. Because 1,500 years later, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples. And instead of following the prescribed Passover ceremony, he, he changed it. Uh, instead of looking back to the Exodus, he looked to his death that was going to happen a few hours later. And he took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he didn't say, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate when they came out of Egypt. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That was our instruction for the future remembrance of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, we must keep remembering God's grace in rescuing us, don't we? If we forget our rescue, we will forget how good God is to save sinners like us. If we forget our rescue, we'll forget how much God loves us. Uh, and if we forget how much God loves us, we'll be in danger of developing a heart that is no longer full of love towards Him. If we forget how good God is to save sinners like us, we will become in danger of being proud. If we forget how merciful God is to us, we'll forget to be merciful and forgiving to others. We mustn't forget, we must keep going back to the cross. We must keep remembering our rescue.
In a few minutes' time, we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper as we remember that great act of rescue on the cross. As we remember that God has saved us from sin and death and Satan and hell through the death of Jesus on our behalf. As we remember that we shelter under the blood of Christ and that God will pass over us when he comes in judgment. We will eat and drink together to celebrate God's rescue and to remember his grace. So in conclusion, friends, we are God's rescued people. And we have seen five things that God expects from his rescued people. Worship in God's one place. Keep coming to God with, in, and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be led astray. Be careful who you listen to. Don't listen to anyone who will draw you away from Christ. Express your holiness. Remember that you are holy. Live a holy life from the heart. Share your resources. Enjoy what God has given you. Support gospel ministry. Care for the poor. Remember God's grace. Keep looking back to what God has done for you in Jesus with a grateful heart. Let's show our love for God by seeking to live in light of these expectations. Let's pray.